open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, they should kind of start opening up to that uh, automatically as we're looking at these verses. Uh, the title of this lesson, this is part two, the S word in the ultimate goal of history. And uh, as you look at 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be in verses 20 through 28 today. 20 through 28. And last week we answered two questions. And it's always a, it's a faith issue to ask uh, your class if they remember what you learned last week. But we'll, we'll try it. We answered two questions. What is the ultimate goal of history? And how is the ultimate goal of history fulfilled? So let's look at that first question. What is the ultimate goal of history? You ought to be able to fill in that blank. All things being... What? Submitted. All things being submitted... To God for His glory and the good of His people. That's the ultimate end of history. That's why we call it the S word. Submission. That's kind of a dirty word in our culture. In fact, this week I listened to a pastor who was teaching on Ephesians 5 and, and he read about how wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And he even called, the as he read it through, he said, oh, here's the S word. Uh, our culture knows. It sounds like a dirty word. Submission. Subjection. And uh, it was interesting as he proceeded to define love as uh, submission and uh, never did define submission for the wives and called the whole thing mutual uh, yielding. And, uh, and so we try to avoid this idea. Well, let me tell you something. Well, hello, Katie. You, you, were doing, you were doing so well there. You were sneaking up there. Thank you. I need my markers today. That's good. All right. Um, if, if you're going to try to avoid uh, submission, if you're going to try to avoid being subjected uh, uh, under authority, uh, uh, good luck, because that's the goal of all of history. Notice what it says in verse 28. Jesus himself, listen, if Jesus can subject himself to the Father, then we can sub certainly subject ourselves to the Son and the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be an all in all. God being all in all happens only one way. All things being submitted to God for His glory and the good of His people. Now, how is that going to happen? Last week we saw that God's kingdom must what? God's kingdom must come to the old creation. If you haven't been watching the news, things are a little out of control down here. Okay, ever since Genesis 3, the world is out of control. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics, everything is, uh, is degrading. Everything is coming apart. Uh, the whole universe is, and your little life, my little life is, nothing's perfect. And therefore, God's kingdom must come to this old creation. That's why Jesus must come again. He must come as king to rule on the throne of David, establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and bring all things under subjection to him. That's why the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom on this earth must come. Because God himself, as a man, a man must establish rule, uh, uh, order back over creation. And that's why in, in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses 25 and 26. For he must reign. That's the thousand-year reign here on this earth, as well as his reign now from heaven, but ultimately his reign here on earth. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And that's where resurrection comes in. This is a connection I didn't know until I did this study. I didn't think about it. You think of Easter, resurrection, we're going to be resurrected. You don't think of the resurrection as being critical to fulfilling God's plan for all of history. But in, ri in raising people from the dead, God is subjecting death under His rule. And that's how He's going to do it. The fulfillment of God's kingdom come, so His will is done on earth as it is in heaven... Uh, is revealed for us in the next to the there's the last four books of the Bible, uh, chapters 19 and chapters 20. The king comes in chapter 19 and he establishes his thousand year reign on this earth in chapter 20. So you can uh, Revelation follows this plan exactly. Now, why must the kingdom come to the old creation? So God's promise is fulfilled in the new creation. Without the kingdom coming to the old creation, and without Jesus subjecting all things to His authority, God's promise will not be fulfilled in the new creation. Look at 2 Peter 3.13. I think I have this in your notes. But according to His promise, according to His promise, God's promise, we are looking for what? Not just heaven up in the air, but a new heavens and a new earth. We're coming back. We're coming back to this planet, but it'll be glorified. It'll be recre recreated. It will be reconciled to God. All things will be under His glorious care. Won't that be a good... Aren't you looking forward to that? All issues of environmental, all environmental, all, all pollution... All uh, human problems, all political problems, all those things, the whole creation and all of humanity will work together under God's rule and God's care. Now, I said that this was God's promise from the beginning, that His presence would dwell with His people in His place through His person, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, by His power, which we're going to see as spirit, resurrection power, all for His purpose. His own glory and our good. So when you read Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters, what happens is 19, the king comes. 20, his kingdom reigns. He reigns on this earth for, 20, uh, for a thousand years, bringing all things under his rule. Then, according to 1 Corinthians 15, he subjects everything, submits himself, and hands the kingdom over to the Father. And when he does that, then the promise is fulfilled, and you move into Revelation 21 and 22. Because in Revelation 21 and 22, Revelation 21 begins with saying, God is dwelling once again on this planet with His people. But He's glorified. Jesus is in His glorified, resurrected body. We are now in our glorified, resurrected bodies. And guess what? The creation is in its resurrected or restored glorified condition. And so God's glory dwells with God's glorified people in God's glorified place. You can read about it in Revelation 20 through, or I'm sorry, Revelation 21 through 22. And all that is in verse 28. So look again at 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Here's the promise fulfilled again. The king and his kingdom are subjected to God so that God may be all in all.
The ultimate end of history. Now, the ultimate goal of all history is God's glory in all things. And we glorify God in all things right now by submitting to God in all things so that He's all in all. So here's the thing. If you acknowledge that that's the end of history, and if you acknowledge that you have been born again and you're part of that future kingdom and you're part of that glorious creation, what should you and I be doing right now? Submitting all things under His authority. Every area. Does that happen overnight? No. But it'll never happen if you don't make an initial acknowledgement. Lord, I submit everything to you. I don't know what that means. In fact, it scares the, the bejeebies out of me. But the reality is, you have given me the spirit. I desire it. I can do it in your power. And so I submit everything to you. And each day, I'm going to be reading your word. I'm going to be praying, submitting myself to you, and asking, Lord, what new area do I need to surrender to you? Because after all, it's all surrendered to you. And sometimes I just don't know I'm not surrendered to you. That's why i got to read your word. That's why I need to walk in your spirit. Because I think everything's dandy. And all of a sudden... You smack me on the side of the head with your word. Your spirit gently speaks to me in my heart. And you say, look, that area is not under my control. Turn it over to me. Quit worrying. Quit living in your own strength. Don't you see how frustrating it is? Don't you see how, 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 uh, how it doesn't work out? Why, how I'm not glorified and how you are not fulfilled in living that way. So, we said last week, God is most glorified in us. When we're most satisfied in submitting all things to Him. That was the application from last week. Now, the second question we looked was this. How is the ultimate goal of God being all in all going to be fulfilled? How is God going to reach verse 28 there in 1 Corinthians 15? Now, we know from last week it's going to involve submitting all things to Christ. Uh, look at verses 24, and 20, 24 through 28. So, look at 1 Corinthians 15. 24 through 28, five times he says, all things submitted. So we know that's how it's going to happen. And we know nothing's going to be left out because if you look at verse 24 and 25, all rule, all authority, all power, all enemies, and the last enemy is death. There's where resurrection comes in. But how it's going to be done is really summarized for us in verses 20 and 23. Notice what it says. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Circle that word in your Bible. Highlight it if you have a digital Bible. First fruits is the key phrase. And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of today. First fruits of those who are asleep. And then drop down to uh, verse 23. Or 22 and 23. He says, in Christ, in verse 22, all will be made alive. All will be resurrected, but each in his own order. And then he says it again, Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, how he's going to do this is all wrapped up in that word, first fruits. And so that's what we, I want to unpack the meaning of that word today for you. And then I want to show you how that's basically the rest of the outline of this chapter. And, and, and see the importance of it. So let's take a look at first fruits. The first thing you want to see is it is an agricultural phrase for the first crop of a full harvest. So it's an agricultural phrase for the first crop of a full 
harvest. Look at Leviticus uh, 23. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 23, 10 through 11. Leviticus 23, 10 through 11. It's used throughout the Old Testament. Here's a classic, classic uh, passage to see first fruits. Leviticus 23, 10 through 11. Moses says, speak to the son, or God says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land, which I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, there's the idea of harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So that first grain that comes up, that first full-headed grain, you bring it to the priest, and he shall wave it before the Lord for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, all of this is a type of Christ. And what's amazing is, Christ is the first fruits. And so, when were the first fruits waved before the Lord? The day after the Sabbath. What day was the Sabbath? Saturday. What's the day after the Sabbath? Sunday. When was Jesus Christ risen? Sunday. The first fruits rose from the dead and presented Himself before the Lord. Isn't that amazing? And what's interesting is the presentation of the first fruits were right after Passover was inaugurated and the seven weeks after that terminated at Pentecost. So here you have Jesus rising on Sunday, being the first fruits at the, right after Passover, right after his crucifixion, and then, uh, 40, and then, and then uh, seven weeks, which is 50 days, you have Pentecost, and there came another harvest, not a bodily, well, actually, uh, also bodily resurrection. Because what happened at Pentecost? 3,000 people get saved and the church is born. But one thing you miss in Matthew, when Christ rose, there was also a bodily resurrection of some Old Testament saints. Because God was saying, look, this is going to happen. This harvest of resurrections are going to happen. Now, let me focus you on three major ideas. So when you think of first fruits, there's three major ideas that you want to think of. And this is real, real... Man, I, I just have the hardest time writing that. First fruits. Ah. There's three ideas, okay? And so it's not complex. It's real simple. Because all you got to think about is, number one, the first fruits are the first of more to come later. The first of more to come later. It's the first crop of a full harvest to come. The word literally can mean the beginning. It's the beginning of more to come. It's the first and the best. In a real sense, the first fruits was like your tithe. You gave the first portion of your income before the government gets any of theirs, before you get any of yours, before you pay your bills, before you do anything. You give that first part to God and you give Him the best part, the best part, and the beginning part because he owns it all. Well, when it came to a harvest, that's how they lived. They didn't get paychecks back then. They lived on the harvest. So when that first harvest came in, you said, Hey, Lord, this is all of you. And so this, there's more to come. Think about when you have a garden. My, we grew up, we had tomato plants. And so I had a little tomato garden. My brother had a tomato garden. And my dad had the, the real deal. And so when you had tomatoes, what do you do? You see blooms. And then you're always looking for what? That first tomato. You're always looking at that first tomato. And there's always a first tomato. 
there's always a first tomato. And there's, that first tomato is usually the first one to ripen, and you're always looking for the first ripe tomato. And when you see the first ripe tomato, what do you do with it? <laughs> exactly. Jackie just cuts to the chase. You pick it because you don't, it's the first one. You pick it and you bring it in and you say, look, we got a tomato. And when it's a good year, it's a big, juicy tomato. This is great. And then what do you do? You slice that baby up. You put a little salt on, salt on it. Oh, and some people eat them like apples, right? And you just eat that thing. And what do you say? You say, there's more to come. This is going to be a good year, right? You're like, we got one, we're going to get more. And all things being equal, and God being gracious, you're going to have a crop of big, this is the first of more to come. But you celebrate that first one. Now, the second thing is the more to come will be like the first to come. The good news about first fruits is all things being equal, the more to come is going to be like the first to come. That's why you get excited about it. If the first tomato is scrawny and tasteless, what do you think? This is going to be a bad year. It's not going to be good, right? But if that first tomato is big, juicy, luscious, great, you're like, this is going to be a great year. Why? Because the first to come is going to be like the more to come. The first fruits are a sign of what the rest of the harvest is going to be like. The first fruits were the first and best of the crops that were harvested and were usually an indicator of what the rest of the crop would be like. And that brings us to the third idea. The third idea of first fruits is the first to come and the more to come later are all dedicated to God's service and glory. The first to come and the later to come and the more to come later are all dedicated to God's service and glory. Again, this is where the, the idea of like the tithe came in. Because what you did was you said, look, I may have fertilized, I may have planted the seed, but the bottom line is we've been waiting for God to give the increase. And when He gives it, we give the first part back to Him. And so in those days, you would take that first tomato and you would run right down and say, Jackie, you wouldn't eat it. Don't you dare. You don't eat that first tomato. What do you do with it? It's God's tomato. And so you would run it down and you would give it to God, and you would actually give it to the priest for him to use. And so it would be dedicated to God's glory because we know that he gave the sunshine, he gave the increase, he's the one that made it grow, and he's the one that's going to bring the rest of the crop in. The first fruits are dedicated to God in recognition that he's the giver of the entire harvest, which all belongs to him, for it came from him, it's through him, and it's for him. It's for his glory. In fact, the use of this word, first fruits, meant dedicating oneself to lifelong service to a God. In other words, it was used even by unsaved people to say the first fruits. I'm a first fruit to God because I'm going to dedicate myself to God. And, and it was always closely associated with giving a tithe. Well, I could take you through more Old Testament passages, but what I want you to see is, it means three things. It's the first to come of more later. The more to come will be like what has already come. And all of it is dedicated to God. Now, look in your notes. This is not only an agricultural phrase, but it's a biblical picture. And that's why Paul's using it here. The first fruits in this passage is a biblical picture of how Christ's bodily resurrection in the past has already set in motion 
and absolutely guarantees the fulfillment of God's ultimate goal for all of history by means of more bodily resurrections in the future, but each in their own order and timing. Now, this is a great truth. Step back and think for me. Easter's been several weeks already, and we've already moved on. Let's be honest. That was great. It was exciting. It was spirit-filled. We were thrilled. All was right in the world during that service. But now we've moved on, and we've forgotten. Right? We don't tend to think every day that when Christ rose over 2,000 years ago, He set in motion. He set in motion a guaranteed harvest and fulfillment of God's purposes. Isn't that cool? Nothing's going to hinder it. Nothing can prevent it. Your world can collapse. You can lose your job. You could lose your marriage. You could lose your kids. This nation could be overturned in riots. And guess what? None of it can hinder what Christ has set in motion. The first fruit has risen. The rest of the harvest is going to come. That's just amazing. In fact, you can get excited and turn to your neighbor and say, that's amazing. I'm excited. It's been set in motion, and it's going to happen. All right. Now, let's take these three concepts of first fruits, and let's apply it to this passage like Paul wants us to. He mentioned it two times. So he wants us to understand the concept, and he wants us to see how it relates to fulfilling God's ultimate goal for history. So I've got three points that mirror the first fruit concept. Here's the first one. As the first fruits, Christ's bodily resurrection is the promise of more resurrections to come in the future. It is the promise. When a loved one dies in the Lord, why can I have hope? Because I know the first tomato's been picked and there's more blooms that are going to blossom. Okay, Christ has risen and there's going to be further resurrection. It's all been set in motion. The promise of future resurrection life will be fulfilled for all who are in Christ, just as the present judgment of death is being fulfilled for all who are in Adam. Here's where we see it in verse 21 through 22. Here's the idea of more to come. Look at verses 21 through 22. Because he says, hey, Christ is, Christ is the first fruits. And then he launches into 21 and 22. Let's read it together. Look at verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and is that did Adam set something in motion that absolutely happens and continues to happen? Yep. Just like that, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Over 2,000 years ago, Christ rose and set in motion and guaranteed that just as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. So let's look at it. verse 21. Just as a male human being brought death into existence for all humanity. When he says a man there, he's not just talking about any old human being. He's saying this, that male and female are made in the image of God, but man, Adam, was given the responsibility of leading and being accountable for him and Eve and the rest of his offspring serving God. And when they blew it in Genesis 3, Eve was deceived. But Adam had the greater sin and the greater responsibility because he just flat out disobeyed. 
And so it's by one male human being, death was brought into existence for all humanity. You say, wait a minute, I wasn't there. Oh, yes, you were. Could I say it this way? You were in Adam's loins. You were in his, or we would say more now, in his DNA. And what he did as the head and the representative of humanity has consequences for all of you. Just like dads, what you do in your family has consequences for your whole family. Right? Just like what our president does has consequences for our nation. Even if I didn't vote for him and even if I don't agree with him, there's consequences. That because I'm an American citizen, I have to live with. So, a male human being has brought resurrection life into existence for a new humanity. Remember the old creation? We have an old humanity under a man who is a sinner that now gives birth to sinners. Now we have a new humanity. Jesus Christ, the God but fully human man. Sinless, died a a perfect sacrifice, rose from the dead to be the first human being to say, I conquered death. And now I've got a new humanity that I'm creating through the gospel. Make sense? Pretty cool. Pretty cool. By the way, let me throw this out there. For those that believe in uh, evolution can be reconciled with creationism, uh, the problem with theistic evolution is you can't preach this verse with theistic evolution because there is no real Adam. And if there's no real Adam, then how did sin enter the world? And if there's no real Adam, then how do we believe what he's saying about Christ in this passage? Are you with me? So what you believe about evolution and trying to wreck it, it's called theistic evolution. Somehow I'm going to believe that God used evolution. Well, it goes totally contrary to a passage like this. There has to be a real Adam. He was a real human being just as Jesus was a real human being, but he was also God. Now look at verse 22. Just as everyone who is in Adam, by virtue of being his physical offspring, are doomed to die spiritually, physically, and eternally, that's called the second death, so everyone in Christ, by virtue of being his spiritual offspring, being born again by the gospel, are destined to live and rise up one day. So, what's the big deal with this? You're like, okay, that's all interesting, but what's the big deal? Let me give you three things. First of all, by virtue of being the first to rise from the dead, Jesus is declared to be the rightful king over all things, and he deserves first place in all things. Because by virtue of being the first to rise from the dead, Jesus is declared to be the rightful king over all things and deserves to be first in all things. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying. He gets to subject all things to himself, and he gets to be the focus of for a thousand-year kingdom reign. He's the focus of the church, the head of the church, all by virtue of he was the one who rose from the dead. Let me give you two passages. Colossians 1.18. Turn there. We won't turn to Revelation 1, but turn to Colossians 1.18, because I want you to see this, this idea in your, in your own Bible. Colossians 1.18. Another word for first fruits is firstborn. Firstborn from the dead. It's the same idea, it's just a different different uh, word picture. This is an agricultural picture. This is a uh, uh, a um, human 
giving birth, you know, family picture. I'm sure there's a more, uh, you know, a, a scholarly word for that, but that's how I'm going to say it. Firstborn from the dead. Notice Colossians 1.18. But he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. Remember I said first fruits, firstborn, beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Why? So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. By virtue of rising first, he is the root, he gets the first place in everything. And then in Revelation 1.5, John says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There you go. First fruits, firstborn. I rule over everything, and I deserve to be the first in everything. How's that working in your life? How's that working? How's that working? Don't look at me like, oh, he's just going on and on about dry old doctrine. No, I'm going on about yours and mine everyday life. If you celebrated Easter four weeks ago, or however many long that was, then we ought to be celebrating it today with Jesus being the first in everything, and Him being ruler over everything. So how's that going? How's that going? I have to ask that. You have to ask that. Now, that's the first big deal. The second big deal is this. Not all human beings will be raised to new life in Christ. Only those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. Only those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Not all human beings will be raised. You see, look at verse 22. Some people misinterpret this verse to say everyone's going to be saved. That's called universalism. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, is that the whole human race? Does everybody die? Yeah. So, also in Christ, all will be made alive. Ah, you see, everybody in the end is going to be raised and saved. The only problem is you're taking that verse out of context. Because when you look at those who are asleep, because look right before that in verse 20, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then you look at uh, uh, 18. Go back to verse 18. We see those who are asleep. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ. The whole, every time, well, first of all, let me say this. I think I have it in your notes. Paul uses being asleep nine times to refer to people who are dead, but every time it's believers who are dead. And here's why. Because when a believer dies, his body lays out, and what does it look like? Like they're sleeping. And because they're believers, one day they're gonna, that body is going to rise up. In fact, did you know the word resurrection in Greek means literally stand up? It means to stand up, to get up out of bed. Southern gospel people love that getting up morning song. Okay, there's, there's songs about that. Well, what's the idea? The idea is that for believers, when a body goes down and dies and lays there, it's merely like going to sleep because one day it's going to get up and live again. Isn't that cool? In fact, the nine times it's used, I already said this, it's always used of believers. Uh, You can look up those verses and they are very, very encouraging. Now, What's asleep? This, let me throw this out too, because man, there's so much false doctrine. There's so much cult involved in the doctrines I'm teaching you, and that's why I'm taking the time to teach you this. Because listen, there's out, people out there that are twisting these doctrines. One of those doctrines is soul sleep, 
And that is when you die, some cults teach that you like, it's like you cease to exist. You're asleep. You're not, you're not active. But what does the Bible say? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. You're very much awake. What sleep refers to is the body, not your soul. Your soul is wide awake in Jesus, and you're with Jesus in heaven. But your body is what's asleep. So that's why it refers to what being asleep. what's being asleep is the body that is laying there and will not get up, will not wake up, will not rise up until the resurrection. Now, here's the third significant thing. Even though only believers will be resurrected to life, look at number three. All human beings will rise up one day, but only believers will be resurrected to eternal life, while unbelievers will be resurrected to eternal death. So everybody gets resurrected, but not everybody gets made alive. Everybody gets resurrected, but not everybody gets eternal life and enters into the new creation. What happens to unbelievers? Well, according to the Old Testament, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to John, both believers and unbelievers are resurrected. It's just that believers are resurrected into the kingdom, into the new creation. Unbelievers are resurrected according to uh, Revelation uh, 21, 21, to stand before the... No, I'm sorry, Revelation 20 to stand before the great white throne judgment. And they are judged according to their works because they, they rejected the gospel when they were alive. You didn't, want, you didn't want what Jesus did for you. Now you're going to have to stand before God on the basis of what you've done. And that means everybody, what? <coughs> Fails. Because everybody's sin is always greater than their, than their righteousness. And when they are judged and their books are not their life, their name is not found in the book of life because they didn't accept the gospel when they were alive, then they are in their resurrected bodies cast into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. And it doesn't mean they cease to exist. Death is separation. It is eternal separation from God in the burning fires of the lake of fire to be forever suffering the wrath of God with no unrelenting opportunity ever again. So everybody's resurrected. Some are resurrected to suffer the eternal wrath of God for all of eternity. Believers are resurrected to enjoy the glory and the goodness and the mercy of God in His new creation. Wow, that is good stuff, Chris. Keep it up. Okay, I will. So, everyone who's in Christ will experience what he's already experienced. And whatever has happened to him will happen to us. We're all part of the new humanity headed for the new creation. Which brings us now to the second way Christ is the first fruits. As the first fruits, Christ's bodily resurrection is number two, the guarantee. The guarantee that our bodily resurrection will be like his. Remember, that first tomato, when it's good, Jackie, what's it mean? There's more to come that's going to be just like it. Sorry, Jackie. Sorry. Keep, keep tracking. Keep tracking. There's going to be more to come just like it. So when Christ, think about all the glories of Christ's resurrected body. It was still His body. It still had the scars of, of His uh, redeeming. It was still the same body. He looked like Him, and yet 
He could pass from heaven to earth and pass through walls. Won't that be cool? I don't know what that means or how that, how that functions for us. In fact, hey, let me tell you how it functions. I'm telling you what. I am learning. There is just so much good stuff in this study. And I can just give you the top of it. And I hope you're eating and drinking deeply. Because here's the thing. His body spatially could be in, you know, move or, you know, it was just, it was freaky, right? He could come in through a locked room. Our bodies are going to be like that. And you're like, well, what's that mean? And you know what I realized? We're going to see this in a minute if I keep moving. We already experienced that because guess where everyone in Christ is right now? You are at seated with him in the heavenlies. So you're already, in a sense, have the spiritual ability to, even though you're physically here, spiritually, we are seated with him in that. We were crucified him. We were risen with him. And we are ascended with him. And we are seated with him. So we already have this spooky weirdness going on where even though I'm here, I'm there. Okay, now some of you are going, you know, I mean, this is hitting some of you. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's hitting with some of you. And this is how we ought to be thinking every day. I'm here, but I'm there. And my life is hid with Christ, in Christ hid with, Christ, uh, with God in Christ. And I'm going to set my mind on things above, not on things below. Colossians 1, or 3, 1 through 4. Okay, now I'm not going to dwell on this much because this is the whole focus of 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 50. Okay, so in a couple of weeks, we're going to hit 35 through 50, and it's all about our resurrection bodies being like his body. So I'm not going to dwell on that, but I do want you to drop down to verse 45. I want you to drop down to verse 45 because he brings Adam up again. And I want you to see old creation, new creation. Old man, new man. Old Adam, second Adam. Greater Adam, more glorious Adam. Look at verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. So he's saying, each in his own order. First we have a natural body. One day we're going to have a spiritual body. The first man is from the earth. Earthy, literally formed out of the dust. The second man is from heaven. This is Christ. Verse 48. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. In other words, as long as we have a body like Adam, then we're going to have a body that's a body of sin, temptation, broken down, dying, falling apart. Aren't you encouraged? Okay? But one day we're going to have a body like him. Glorious, strong, powerful, with no curse, with no sickness, with no sin. So notice, 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There he goes. Kingdom of God, new creation. Kingdom of God, new creation. That's where we're headed. First comes the kingdom, then comes the new creation. All right. So I can't dwell on that anymore. Let's get to the third. Third way, the first fruits. Christ as the first fruits is the beginning of the orderly process of all things being submitted to God. It's the beginning. 
couple weeks ago, we talked about the now, not yet. The kingdom has come now because the king has come. But the kingdom is not on earth, it's not yet. The resurrection has come because Christ has been risen. And we are seated with Him in the heavenlies. And yet, look at my body. It ain't no resurrection body. And don't get too proud of that. Look at your body. In fact, you just say to one another, you don't have a resurrection body yet. Okay? You don't have a resurrection body yet. Do what? What are you saying? Yeah. (laughs) Kobe, don't say anything. Don't say anything. That is a wise thing. But Aaron's telling you, you don't have a resurrection body, my man. Uh, This is the beginning. The now, not yet. Okay, so now last week I had this. Let's look at this. This is the big overview. Okay, this is a big overview. Again, you can go on our website, uh, glenwoodconnection.org. You can look at our doctrinal statement. Here's what we believe about the end things based on what the Bible teaches and our understanding of it. An overview of how all things will be submitted to God for His glory and our good through bodily resurrection. Number one, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead to ascend on high, sit at the right hand of the Father's throne, where all things have been subjected under His feet, even though we don't see all things subjected to Him. See again, now, not yet. He's king, He's reigning, all things are subjected to Him, but... We don't see it. It hasn't practically happened. Spiritually, it's true. What did Jesus say before He ascended? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Listen, if He wasn't reigning, you couldn't be saved. See, when you hear the gospel, it's the message of the king. The king has come. And he was crucified, and he rose, and he's spiritual reigning, and he is granting life to whoever submits to him by faith. And because he's king over sin and Satan and self, when you say, yes, I'm going to forsake my sin to follow you as my king and savior, and you get baptized like these kids are going to get baptized today, and you're saying, hey, it's not me, it's what he's done. It's his death, his burial, his resurrection. Now I rise to walk in newness of life. The only reason that's a reality is because he has the authority to say, yes, your sins have been forgiven. Um, In Acts chapter 2, here's what Peter said. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, Lord and King. This Jesus whom you crucified. But now turn to Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 1. We're not going to read through all these scriptures. We'll just read these beginning ones because... Jesus rose, and he's waiting for all things to be subjected at his feet at the right hand of the Father. But look at Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Look at Ephesians 1, 18 through 23, and listen to how the resurrection plays into this. Verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, 
which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. There's your now, not yet. This age and the one to come. The new creation, the kingdom coming. Notice, and, now look at verse 22 though. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Notice, <coughs> notice that's not future, that's past. So he's waiting for all things to be subject to him, and yet all things are subject to him. Get your mind around that. Now, not yet. You see? It's an orderly process. But, but look at verse 23, though, which is his body, the church. See, right now, his authority is concentrated on the church and bringing more subjects into the kingdom through the church and through the gospel. The king is there. The church is here as a kingdom outpost that is sharing the gospel, bringing more subjects for the future kingdom to come. You see how that works? But notice what he said in verse 23. The church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Does that sound familiar? All in all? God one day is going to be all in all. But in the meantime, Christ is all in all. And He demonstrates that through the church as a promise of His coming kingdom. And then you go to Hebrews 2. We can't read that. But here's what He says in verse Hebrews 2. Um, Verse 6, listen to this. But one has testified somewhere, and this is Psalm 8 that he's referring to. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower. A little, uh, you, may, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. He's taken Psalms 8, and he's applying it to Jesus Christ. And then he says this. For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. All I'm trying to say to you is when Christ rose and ascended and sits on the right hand, He is King and He has begun His reign spiritually over the church and He's bringing subjects into the coming kingdom and one day everything's under His feet so anything that happens to you He's still in control of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But one day, he's going to come and his feet are going to set on this planet and he's going to bring all rule and all authority under him. Now, what I have in the, le in the rest of that is the rest of that process. Okay. Now, here's what I want you to do. I already told you to do this once, but I know me and I know you, and I'm telling you to do it again. Read through this uh, this week. Read through this orderly process, because here's what we're going to do next week. And then we'll be done with this part of the passage. We're going to take a third go-around at this passage. We've looked at, so far, the end of history, which is submission of all things. We've looked at first fruits. Now we're going to take, next week, we're going to take this passage and compare it to the rest of Scripture. Because some people misinterpret this passage to think that there's only going to be one general resurrection, when in fact... There's a total of three, okay? And I'm going to show you how that compares out and lays out. But here's what I want, to, want you to get today. Is rising up will get us to the end that God intends. 
Christ rising up is going to get us to the end that God intends. And that's just really cool. I hope your understanding of resurrection is just expanding. That this isn't just an Easter thing. This isn't just a thing with Jesus in the past and me in the future. I'm in this now, not yet. And what happened in the past and what's coming in the future ought to impact my daily living. Amen? Because you're seated with Him. You're reigning with Him spiritually. Now live like it on this earth and let Him be the King of kings and the Lord of lords in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that uh, Scripture is bigger than what we can... I mean, it's just a big uh, map and revelation of Your plan. And we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. and, And it can be overwhelming. Somebody might be overwhelming to some right now. Uh, we certainly can't understand it all immediately. So let's just take the little bits that we got today and help us to live it out this week. And then let us come back again next week and let us continue to read during the week. And Lord, we're just asking you to enlighten the eyes of our mind, open our hearts to understanding so that we can see that rising up will get us to the end that you intend the submission of all things to your kingdom authority. Because, God, that's going to bring you the greatest glory. It's going to bring us the greatest good. We are most satisfied in you when we have submitted all things to you. Help us to live it out this week. In Jesus' name and for your glory. All God's people said, Amen. Go forth, live it out.